Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for being with us at the 11 o'clock service. Uh, glad you're here. Uh, my name is Daniel, as Richard just uh, prayed. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, and we are taking uh, the summer, uh, which is during the liturgical season called Ordinary Time, uh, marked by the color green that you see on the pulpit and on the Lord's table. And we're preaching a, a sermon series called Sacred Practices. Uh, our desire is that God would use this season and this sermon series uh, to cultivate within us a greater desire to abide in him. And as we abide in him, God would graciously cause the fruit of life with God to grow in and through us. And sacred practices or spiritual practices, or perhaps you've even heard them referred to as spiritual disciplines, are set-apart tools that cultivate life with God. Uh, they are God-given channels by which he pours out his presence and grace. Now, there are many spiritual practices, uh, but there are eight that we have identified here at Christ Central that we emphasize and think are important in our life with God. And so we're going to, throughout the summer, look at these eight spiritual and sacred practices. I really like the word practice over discipline now, because the goal of practice is not achievement, but about being and becoming. We live in a culture driven by achievement. We are urged to do things and to get things. We love setting goals. We like to measure success. We're always seeking to get more knowledge and to gain more information. All we have to do is look at the field of artificial intelligence, right? Uh, which has been being talked about everywhere these days and I've been fascinated with for months. Uh, but it is the crowning achievement of humanity's pursuit of information and knowledge. And all the while, vast interiors of the human heart are left longing and wanting more than just knowledge and obtaining and achieving. Right? Sacred or spiritual practices are God-given ways for us to cultivate our interior life, our souls in relationship with God as we become more aware of God's presence and how bent he is on knowing us and loving us and changing us. Right? Practice is something we do habitually over time, often clumsily, not to achieve, but to become. And through these channels of God's grace, he meets us and he transforms our hearts and souls and therefore our living. Right? Spiritual practices are not a way to measure ourselves against others. It's a way of being and becoming more of who God has always intended us to be. Now, one of the issues with the church, at least the church in the West, is that in our current moment of doing things and getting things, uh, we have made spiritual formation and discipleship primarily about gaining the right knowledge or having the right ideas. We have bought into a myth that if we can just get people to think Christianly, it will inevitably lead to acting Christianly. But anyone who goes on a diet will tell you this. You can know all the knowledge that sugar is bad for you and that vegetables are healthy and good for you, but the issue isn't knowledge. The issue is that you just don't want to eat vegetables. You want to eat sugar. You want carbohydrates. Right? So for us to be and to become who God has created us to be, we don't just need knowledge. We need our desires changed. We need what we love changed. And sacred practices are the means by which God has given us to see our desires changed over time as we place ourselves in God's presence. And then we respond to the God who is seeking after us, loving us, and has promised to transform us. 
Two weeks ago, Pastor Evan started this sermon series and he, he preached on the sacred practice rule of life that Richard just said we'll be discussing in this coming city fellowship. It's a practice that goes back to the third century and really took root in the church in the sixth century with St. Benedict. This morning, we're going to be looking at the sacred practice of Holy Scripture, the Bible. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to give attention to Psalm 119, verses 9 through 16. This is God's word to us this morning. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we are so grateful that you move toward us, that you reveal yourself to us, that even now you have promised that as we open up the Holy Scriptures, you speak, for your word is living and active. And it's sharper than a double-edged sword. And so we ask that you would divide uh, the very thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. That you would lead us in your way everlasting. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing. We need to hear from you, God. Holy Spirit, would you illumine our minds and soften our hearts and plant your word deep in uh, our souls that we might bear fruit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Years ago, there was a story in a publication uh, that I watched my mom read growing up in Columbus, Georgia, Reader's Digest. Uh, it was a story uh, about a five-year-old boy who had a, a neighbor who had little kittens. And this boy would go to his neighbor's house and lay in the middle of the floor on their rug, and he would play with the kittens as they bounced around and, and they played with each other. And then the boy went to another neighbor's house, and, uh, and that neighbor had puppies. And he would lay in the middle of the floor on their rug and he would play with the puppies as the puppy, puppies bounced around and wrestled with one another. And so he came home one day and he, and he finally said, Mom, I want some pets. Uh, but the little boy had allergies and that was the reason uh, that they never had pets. And so his mother thawed and brainstormed and she bought him an aquarium filled with goldfish. And she thought this was the perfect solution and put the aquarium and the goldfish in the boy's room and some time had passed. And the mother came in to ask the boy, how do you like your pets? And he said, well, you know, Mom, at first they played really well. They, they jumped around together, but now they just lay there on the rug. Now, why did the fish, when they finally got out of their narrow, confining aquarium, not experience the freedom that the boy had hoped for? We, I think we all know the answer to that because the boy was violating the being of a fish. He took them into an environment they were not built for. Right? Freedom and flourishing only comes when something or someone lives into its design and intent. Psalm 119 as a whole, but our verses 9 through 16 are about the ultimate environment in which the human heart and soul soars, which is a life surrendered and lived in obedience to God as revealed in the scriptures. Verse 9 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? This word pure means clean, holy. But I, I want you to think about this in a different way than maybe you normally would this morning. Holiness is a word, at least for me, 
that in Christian environments that I have swam in since becoming a Christian in high school normally causes me to think about moving toward a goal, some type of achievement that I need to do certain things in order to be holy, which just leads to more guilt and shame in my life. And so I want you to think about pure like you would when someone's called a purist, a fishing purist, a golfing purist. A purist is someone who's committed to doing something true to its original design. So when the psalmist asks, how can a person keep their way pure? Think about it this way. How can one's life be true to the original design? How can one's life be free because you are living as God, our creator, intended? And the answer, verse 9, is by living according to God's word. Because God's word is not restrictive. It's not confining. In fact, it's liberating. And it leads us to live in our original design as human beings created in God's image. We violate ourselves and we destroy our own being when we live outside of God's word. His word, his commands, his testimonies, his precepts, his statutes. These are all synonyms of God's direct word, his will for his people. And it's the only environment in which we will be fully free and flourish in because God's word leads us to purity, to God's original design and intent for humanity. Now, I know this spiritual practice of scripture leads us into something that can be a major issue for many people in our day, which is the submission to an authority. But what Psalm 119 tells us is that, is that we won't get transformed and we won't flourish unless we come under the authority of God as given in his word. And we can't be naive. Every single one of us is under some ultimate authority. Nobody here is completely free. If you live for wealth, you're a slave to wealth. If you live for morality, you're a slave to the law. If you live to please people, you're a slave to the people you're seeking to please. Everyone has something that is the main center of our life, something in which you live for, something that you want and desire, and whatever that is, is your authority. And a Christian is someone who through faith in Jesus has God as the main center of their life. God is our authority. And we submit ourselves to him as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And as we do, we are set free. And we're transformed into who God created us to be. Now, before I jump into Psalm 119, I feel like I have to do a quick flyover of what I mean by Scripture. Uh, when the psalmist says word, commands, statutes, uh, the psalmist is referring to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible known as the law of God. But on this side of redemption history, for thousands of years, the church has affirmed that there are 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, known as the canon that are God's revealed word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The aim of all scripture is righteousness, right living, original design living, freedom, and flourishing. Now, when Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's referring, referring to the whole Old Testament, more than just the first five books known as the Torah. 
And in the New Testament, we read of Peter affirming Paul's writings as authoritatively God's word. And Paul affirms other New Testament writers as writing God's authoritative word. And we have the history of the church that affirms 66 books known as the Holy Scriptures as God's authoritative word. All of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament is God's breathed out word, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now stay with me here as I continue to hit on some important points of, of Scripture. We also believe the Bible did not arrive independently. Right? Yes, the Bible consists in three languages, spanning 1,500 years, dozens of authors, numerous genres, and diverse audiences, but we hold to one ultimate author, that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which means not only is all of the Bible authoritative, but the Bible is coherent and clear. Each book of the Bible is related to the other, different yet common with the same purpose of leading to the fullness of our flourishing unto salvation. Each book of the Bible is necessary, but none is complete in itself. Each must be used and interpreted in light of the others, for God is the author, and he's not a God who contradicts himself, but he is revealing a coherent and clear way of salvation. You, follow, you tracking with me? All right, I'm still hitting some things that I think are really important here. The Bible is also reliable, that we can trust that this is the way God speaks to his people. And God speaking to us is extremely important for at least two reasons. The first is that we are designed and created to be in personal relationship with God. Relationship means two-sided. We speak and we're spoken to. We act and we're acted toward. God speaking to us through the scriptures is God moving to be in personal relationship with us. And the second reason God speaking to us is important is that our personal relationship with God is based on his revelation of himself, not our own image of God. Eugene Peterson writes this, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us. Right, someone can only have a personal relationship with someone who talks back who fights back, who says things that we don't want to hear. But if you read portions of the Bible and you toss them out because you don't like them or you can't accept them because they're primitive and outdated, you're not in relationship with a living God who speaks and talks back to you. You're in relationship with a God of your own choosing. And this is a type of God that will not change you because he can't contend with you. If you're looking to a God you've created, you might be happy at times, but it won't be personal. So I want to emphasize two things in our text of Psalm 119 verses 9 through 16 that we're encouraged to do with Scripture that will lead us to live free and fully as God intended. The first is that we are to meditate on Scripture. And the second is that we are to delight in Scripture. Let's look first at meditating on Scripture. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. We're saying Proverbs 3, write your word on the tablet of my heart. Verse 15, Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. The word of God is not something that we labor over for impersonal study as if we're taking an exam. 
They are words that we take in, that we ingest, words designed to shape new life in us. This word meditate in verse 15 is the same word that the prophet Isaiah uses as the sounds a lion makes over its prey in Isaiah 31 verse 4. A lion over its catch and a person over the word of God act similarly. They growl in pleasurable anticipation of taking in what will make them more themselves, more strong, and more swift. And this is quite different than merely reading God's word for information. It's ingesting and chewing on and metabolizing God's word. And since the Bible is Holy Spirit inspired, it means it's a living document. Not just some ancient document. And so as we meditate on it, God speaks directly to us. And he speaks into our current world. And the scriptures then become the rightful lens by which we interpret all of life. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. The Bible has feet. It runs after me. The Bible has hands. It lays hold on me. Now, one of the main ways here at Christ Central that we encourage meditation on scripture is through an ancient prayerful way of reading scripture called Lectio Divina. Um, for years, we've been encouraging this practice, and I don't have time to break down Lectio Divina in my sermon. I'll just plug July 12th at our city fellowship. We're going to be talking about Lectio Divina. So you can come to July 12th. That's just a teaser for you to, for, for you to come. But here's my exhortation as I, I'm kind of pushing, meditating on Scripture. Bible reading plans are good. Reading straight through the Bible is a good thing. Studying a book of the Bible is, is great. But don't let your goals and your desire to achieve dominate your approach and posture to Scripture. Meditate on God's Word. Like a lion over its prey, sit with it. Growl over it. Enjoy it. It might be a few chapters of the Bible. It might be a few verses. Or it might be one verse. Or it might just be a phrase. And let God seek you through His living Word by His Spirit. The second thing that Psalm 119 tells us to do with Scripture that leads to freedom and fullness of God's design is that we are to delight in Scripture. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies I delight. Verse 16, I delight in your statutes. I mean, these verses are not the words of someone saying, oh, I like to read the Bible. There's some good advice, a good advice in there for me. Or I even like reading the Bible because I can obey it. With my whole heart, I seek you. I delight. All right, these are words of someone in love. These are the words of someone full of passion. The 20th century preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, used the analogy of falling in love with a person to describe the similarities of being with God in his word. And this is what he said. He said, when, when you're falling in love, right, every time you're with that person, you make mental notes of that person's joys and sorrows, the things that make that person happy and the things that make that person distressed, the things they love and the things they hate. He said you do this so that you can conform your behavior, so that you can see the delight on that person's face. They, they love watching this TV show. Oh, I would love to watch that TV show. They, they want to go to this place. Oh, I would love to go there too. And what Lloyd-Jones is saying is that when you're in a love relationship, you look at a person's likes and dislikes and you submit and conform to them out of a deep delight and passion so that you can grow even deeper in love. 
The psalmist in Psalm 119 doesn't, doesn't just see the words as commands and law, but as, but as an expression of the author's heart and way. And when we are in relationship with God, we take great delight in submitting ourselves and conforming to his likes and dislikes. Tim Keller said, said this, he goes, why does someone look at the picture of their lover over and over? Because you love the glass, you love the frame or the photographic paper, it is because you are in love with the person the picture is of. Why does someone pour over a love letter? Not because you love the paper and the ink, but because it smells of him or her, because you are in love with the person. We delight in the scriptures because they are an expression of God's heart toward and for us. Through the Bible, we are taking into a deeper, personal, loving relationship with God. The scriptures are important because they are a vessel that take us to the person of God. Even more specifically, they take us to Jesus. The scriptures are the unfolding of God's salvation in and through Jesus. And after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to the two who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and he explained to them how all of God's word speaks of himself. He began with Moses, the Torah, and then the prophets, the whole Old Testament. And we know the whole New Testament as well speak about Jesus and his kingdom. We, we love in the Mason family to read the Jesus Storybook Bible to our kids. And the children's ministry here at Christ Central uses the, the uh, Storybook Bible all the time as well. And I love the subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Every story whispers his name. Every story whispers Jesus' name. But the Bible is not a book of rules. It's not a book of heroes we seek to emulate. It is the revelation of the God of salvation who loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to rescue and redeem us in order to restore us and the world back to what he's always intended, which is to be pure, free from the contamination of this broken world and in a deeply loving relationship with our creator who made us. And so when we allow the sinful broken world to be the waters in which we swim in and we don't live in joyful surrender and obedience to God, we're like the fish flopping around on the rug. It's not what we were designed for. So let me end by saying this. We at times might be able to nod in agreement with the Bible when it's read or, or we hear it read. But I have to say this resonance doesn't mean obedience. To nod our head and to resonate with God's word doesn't always mean obedience to God's word. To get to a place of joyful obedience, pure, leaving, pure living, we need our wants and desires changed. And scripture is one of the sacred practices that God gives us to be the channel of his presence and grace that transforms our loves and desires. And so we meditate on scripture. We delight in scripture. And as we do, You'll find out that you aren't just mesmerized by the words or the story or the poetry of the Bible, but you will find yourself more and more in love with the person of God who is the author of the book. And you'll find yourself more in love with Christ who is the center of the book. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, draw us to be a people who are being transformed day by day by your grace and by your love. God, I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you speak to us, that you love us so much that you pursue us. Even when we don't have ears to hear, you continue to, to call out and speak. Lord, I pray that you would 
uh, even meet us now uh, as we come uh, to the word that we get to taste and smell and touch at the, at the Lord's Supper. I uh, pray that you would bless us as we come to the table in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.